In the name of Jesus, amen. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the words of Jesus. I know many wish he never said these words, but he did. The God who is love, who became man, who became our substitute, who suffered and died for all the ungodly, who desires that all be saved and go to heaven with him. These are the words that came out of his mouth. Our Lord did not shy away from speaking on the subject of hell and eternal damnation. In fact, no one spoke more about hell or more stringently about the dangers of hell than the Lord Jesus. That's because he came specifically to save us from hell and damnation. And what Christ teaches, we must teach. What he preaches, we must preach. Whether it's comforting or terrifying, gloomy or cheerful, whether we want to hear it or not, it's the word of God, and so we should all listen. It doesn't matter if the preacher wants to preach on it or not. For the record, I don't. But I will. And so today we meditate upon the words of our dear Lord as he warns us about the danger of hell. Jesus says the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So who are the sons of the kingdom that he's talking about? In the immediate context This is a reference to the Israelites, to Israel. You can see this in verse 10, where Jesus commends a man who is a centurion, a soldier over a hundred other men. Jesus commends this man who is not a Jew, not an Israelite, but a man who is a Roman and certainly a Gentile. And yet Jesus commends him for his faith. And then he says, many will come from east and from west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this man is an example of one who comes from really far away, who is not a Jew, who is not from the lineage of the promised Messiah, who doesn't have Abraham as his physical father but one who is a Gentile, who did not observe the Passover, who was not circumcised, who is a descendant of the unbelieving ones to whom the promise of the Savior was not given. He, yes, he will be in the kingdom of heaven. And on the other hand, the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, the ones whose lineage brought forth the Messiah who observed the Passover, who were circumcised, who built the temple, so on and so forth. These will be thrown into the outer darkness, that is, into hell. Though they physically came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their descendants, they won't make it into the kingdom to even sit with them there. Those whom you'd most expect to be in the kingdom of heaven won't be there. 
And this is troublesome. It's troublesome because I don't think that Jesus is simply warning the unbelieving Jews of his day in the, that moment alone. Rather, I think that he is also warning us that many whom you would have expected to, to go to heaven will not be there. They will be cast out. Better said, many who think they have nothing to be condemned for will be the ones who will be condemned. The ones most certain and sure and self-confident of their good works, their virtue, their upbringing, their name, their lineage, whatever it might be, will be the ones who will be cast out into the outer darkness. The ones who think they are most undeserving of hell are the ones who will be surprised to find themselves there. Jesus doesn't simply tell us that many who don't expect it will go to hell, but he also goes on to describe what hell is like to some extent. And from Jesus' words here today, we see three characteristics of hell. First, he describes it as outer darkness. Now, this may mean that hell is a dark place, that it has no light, no visibility. But more than that, I think he calls it outer darkness because Christ, who is the light of the world, is not there. So hell means to be forever excluded with communion, from communion with God. And even worse, it means to never have the hope of seeing that light again, never having the hope of getting out. It is eternal. It is forever. It has no end. The second way Jesus describes hell is that it will be a place of weeping. There will be tremendous grief and sadness, even regret, an unending regret because of their own unbelief and rejection of Christ. The scriptures say that those who don't believe are left without excuse because God has made himself known. In fact, Jesus even tells us that even though all who are in hell suffer, he does say that there are still varying degrees of suffering in the damned. Remember when he says, in that day it will be more tolerable for, you, for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And I think that the degree of pain from regret will be greatly increased on those who heard the gospel clearly preached and yet rejected it. That pain of knowing that they heard the truth, they had the way out of hell, they were at a moment a citizen of heaven, letting it slip through their fingers for sin or unbelief or impenitence or hard heart. That is for refusing to admit that, uh, that they are guilty of sin. They will feel the greatest pain of regret. In other words, those who have believed for a time and then have fallen away will lament the most. Now, there's a third thing that Jesus says of hell, and I think this may be the most interesting. He says there will be gnashing of teeth. What is that? Well, in one sense, it can be applied to the pain that one will experience in hell. Hell will be painful, and when we experience pain, we clench our jaw and we grind our teeth. But I think this refers also to something else a little more specific. This is a phrase that comes from the Hebrew, and it describes a person who is angry. In Psalm 35, it says that the godless gnashed at me with their teeth because they were angry. 
Psalm 37 says the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him his teeth. Lamentations 2 says all your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you and they hiss and gnash their teeth. Look, even more, I think this is the most telling definition of this phrase in Acts chapter 7 after Stephen preaches the word of God to the Sanhedrin and he exhorts them to repent and he shows them their sin. It says this, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Do you see what this is? There's anger and there's rage and there's fury. This gnashing of teeth that Jesus speaks of is the clenching of the jaw in anger and frustration and hatred. And this is what Jesus reveals to us. The people in hell not only uh, have no hope and experience, of, uh, uh, suf- and experience suffering, but they also, also gnash their teeth in anger because they're frustrated that they're there. Like the devil, they are perpetually angry at God. While on earth they believed they only deserved good, they deserved to go to heaven, they earned their way through their good works, obedience, virtue, whatever it might be, and now they find themselves in hell and they don't think it's fair. They don't deserve that. They deserve better than that. They're not worthy to suffer that hell. I think it's quite telling that we so often see these exact attributes in those around us who reject Christ and his word. In my experience, those who don't believe in God are not simply docile or humble about it. They're actually pretty angry about it, even if they don't believe it. As a side note, I think that's, that's, I've always found that pretty weird. I always wonder why the unbeliever gets angry at the, the Christian doctrine that the unbeliever goes to hell. If they don't think it's true, if it's not true, then why would it affect him? Why would he have any emotions uh, regarding this if it's not a reality? But I think the reason they get angry is because deep down inside they are afraid that it may be true. That their conscience is bearing testimony against them that there is actually a God and that they will have to give an account for all their deeds. Anyway, not just that, but they are angry at those who do believe in God. And they're especially angry at God, that God would send them to hell for not admitting their sin or believing in Jesus. They get angry that the Bible says that good works will not get us into heaven. And so those who suffer in hell are angry because they think that it is unjust, it is unfair, that there has been a mistake. They're angry because it's not their fault. They don't deserve it. They don't understand why they're there. They think they're worthy of something better, greater, more comfort. They're worthy of heaven and eternal life. They don't, this is not the place for them. And this is where the anger comes from. All right. So keep all of that in mind. And I'll bring it up again in a moment. But now it's time to consider the Jesus and the centurion. And listen to what happens. 
Jesus goes to Capernaum, and a centurion goes up to Jesus and says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And then the centurion says, this is astounding. He says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. This is stunning. Jesus says, I will go to your house. And the centurion says, no, you don't need to come to my house. Well, why doesn't Jesus need to go to his house? It's because the centurion is assuming that Jesus already knows where he lives, even though he's never been there. He's assuming that Jesus already knows who his servant is, which one of his servants he's talking about, and that he's already sick. The centurion is looking outwardly at this man, the man Jesus, in an ordinary appearance, and yet he attributes to him not only divinity and omnipotence, the ability to heal this man of paralysis, but also omniscience, that Jesus knows all things. So that means... When that centurion says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, he knows that Jesus knows all the reasons he shouldn't step foot into his house. He knows that Jesus knows his guilt, knows and has seen specifically what he has done in that home and throughout his whole life. He knows the sins of his own home and he is embarrassed and ashamed to even have Jesus there step a foot under his roof. He says, I'm not worthy of it. I don't deserve that. When the centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home, he's not just being modest or overly pious or just this is just the proper etiquette. You know, I'm not, I'm not worthy of this. He's genuinely confessing his sin. He is really, really saying, I am unworthy, and he means it. And at the same time, this doesn't mean that he doesn't make the request. He still goes to Jesus because he knows that Jesus has come to save and forgive and rescue sinners like himself. He confesses that he deserves judgment in hell, that he doesn't even, uh, uh, he, he's not even worthy to have Jesus in the same place as him. And yet he goes to Christ knowing that Christ will not turn him away. And that, dear saints, is called faith. This is the difference between those who will be in the kingdom of God and those who will not be. When those who have no faith uh, when you consider the unbeliever and you see those who have no faith, when they hear that they're sinners and that they are deserving of hell and damnation, their immediate reaction is anger or fury and they get offended and they say, how could you say that? How could you say that I'm a sinner, that I deserve to go to hell? I'm a good person. Why would God send me to hell? There's just anger and rage that comes up within them. But when those who have faith who believe the word of God, hear that they are indeed poor and miserable sinners and that they do really deserve nothing but temporal death and eternal damnation, the Christian doesn't get angry or belligerent. He's not surprised by these words. He simply bows his head 
confesses his sinfulness and says, I know. I do. I do deserve to go to hell. That is fair. That is just. God would be doing the right thing. I know my sin, and I'm heartily sorry for them, and I sincerely repent of them, and I pray to God that he of his boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter suffering and death of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. And he says this, knowing that God is gracious to sinners, that he doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but that they would repent and live. And this makes all the difference. Faith is the difference. Like that centurion, faith confesses the truth of our sin and the truth of our Savior. We say with that centurion, look, Jesus, I know I don't deserve, I don't deserve anything from you. I have not earned the right to commune at this altar. I'm not worthy to be baptized at this font. I don't even desire a seat in this church. And I'm fully undeserving to even look at the cross on which you've died. I'm completely unfit to even hear the precious gospel that you speak. I'm entirely unworthy to have you even think of me or be mindful of me for one second. I'm not worthy to step a foot in your kingdom. But you, O Lord, you say the word. And I will be healed of my sin and my guilt and my death. Only say that this washes away my sins and I will be saved. Only say that this is given for the forgiveness of my sins and I will have life and salvation. Only say that today I will be in paradise with you and I will be there with you forever. Faith knows that we don't deserve anything from God. And yet faith trusts that God will give it. Because he's love. When Jesus died on the cross for you, when he spilled his blood for you and gave his breath up for you, it was at that moment he made you worthy of salvation. He actually saved you from hell itself, actual hell, a real place where real people go. He saved you from that by suffering the pain of hell on the cross for you. And by doing that, by his wounds, by his damnation on the cross, he earned for you the salvation that you didn't deserve. The crown of life that you were not worthy to wear, he put it on your head. And he gave you all of his righteousness, all of his innocence, all of his blessedness. And he made you one of the ones far away from the east and from the west to be ones who will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even with that centurion in the kingdom of heaven. By forgiving you all of your sins, he made you worthy to sit at that table to dwell in his kingdom, not because anything you've done or said, but because of what he has said, because of his word, because of what he has promised. So because of this, because of Jesus, you will not be cast into the darkness without hope because Jesus will be with you and you won't need the sun or a lamp because he will be the light. 
And you will not be cast out into the place of weeping because you will be with Jesus who will wipe away every tear with his nail-pierced hands. And you will not be cast out to the place of closed mouths and gnashing teeth because you will be in heaven where Christ will open your lips to sing his praise forever. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Hear the words of this hymn. I know my faith is founded on Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, and this, my faith confessing, unmoved I stand on his sure word. Our reason cannot fathom the truth of God profound, who trusts in human reason, wisdom, relies on shifting ground. God's word is all-sufficient. It makes divinely sure, and trusting in its wisdom, my faith shall rest secure. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.